0: From seven days of the week to the seven wonders of the world, culture is shaped by sevens, and the BMW 7 Series is no exception. Be welcomed in with automatic opening doors, shape your experience behind the wheel with a curved display, or recline in the back seat and escape into the 31-inch theater screen. Reshape the way you drive in the redefining BMW 7 Series. BMW, the ultimate driving machine.
1: See your local BMW center today for a test drive. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Odd Lots. I'm Joe Weisenthal, co-host of What Do You Miss and editor at Bloomberg Markets.
2: And I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets.
1: Here at Odd Lots, we want to have a discussion every week about economics, finance, markets, market structure, which Tracy loves, maybe some politics and culture thrown in stuff that doesn't necessarily fit into the normal day-to-day conversation. And we couldn't think of any guest better to have than Tom Keane.
0: Am I a guinea pig?
1: You're <laughs> you the guinea pig. <laughs> okay, thank you. Tom Keane, as everyone should know, is the host of Bloomberg Surveillance on TV and radio here at Bloomberg. He knows more about markets and economics and world events than just about anyone else in the room he's a very eclectic background in music and mathematics and i wanted to have wanted to have tom keen on the show because tom is always interviewing people but he's never answering <coughs> questions he's never behind I try, the to, microphone. I try to
0: avoid it like the plague seriously
1: well, <laughs> so we're gonna break i'm not
0: doing this for you joe i'm doing this for tracy well, okay. everybody, <laughs> everybody
1: knows that but um who are you tom <clears throat> why are you here how did you get to be tom keen who everybody I, knows I, and loves. I,
0: I get it a lot. And, and what I would suggest is it's one part short-term stuff, one part long-term stuff, and one part blind luck. The long-term thing is is being acutely aware when I was a kid and ever more every day knowing how twisted the early years were. I felt sound like a Stan Freeberg record. And you don't know who Stan Freeberg is. He was a great comedian. He just died this year. And then recently, it was about the privilege of running into Matt Winkler. And basically, Matt and I, with the support of Al Mayers, who runs Bloomberg Media, and Ted Fine, who runs TV, they're the ones that made all this happen.
2: Matt Winkler, for our listeners who don't know, is the guy who founded Bloomberg News, essentially. So you got lucky, you met Matt Winkler.
0: You just hired me because of the bow tie. But uh, (laughs) uh, to make a long story short, you get lucky. And I met Matt, and we basically invented what you see. Hmm. That's that's a safe statement.
1: What were you doing before then? Because when I think of you, <clears throat> I think you project this aura of someone who's been doing radio for decades. Yeah. But what were you doing before you did radio and TV?
0: Well, before the media thing, I was in the investment business, but there's a whole sidecar thing in music and in entertainment. Um, for example, and I, I, I gauge it off my oldest child's age... I used to hold them in my arms and do the stock report in Boston. (laughs) And this is the vanilla days, not cross-asset. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 42 points today, 842, blah, blah, blah. You know that. And so I did a little bit of investment stuff back then, but a lot of it was just the music business as well, which is the showbiz aspect, which a lot of people in business media try to ignore every day, and they're wrong. I mean, the FT's pink. It's pink for a reason. It's pink. It's like what you did. I mean, you invented the modern headline in modern business journalism. So it's just, you know that Weisenthal wrote that or You just know that.
2: How has your investment experience informed your career? Though? Oh,
0: huge. Oh, huge. Um, the, the, it's a massive type two in that you learn so much enjoying losing money. Um, it, it's, it's, for those of you Gaussian, it's log normal. Uh, you learn way more on the downside than the upside
2: lots of fat tail risk lot,
0: there's fat tail risk but that's, it's not that is not that's overemphasized it's the joy of losing money within the fat tails mm. which what is do you mean, which what is why joy played.
1: i mean i think that's probably counterintuitive you learn a lot of
0: factors that. more losing money mm. than making money factors more but i can tell you that the way i learned to lose money was enjoying losing money in the options market
1: and then, so when you're doing the show, whether on radio or TV, how do you apply that—the fact that you learned so much mo- more when you lost money? When you think about I, it's a humility thing.
0: show. It's a it's a humility thing of knowing every day how dumb you are, and trying to always work at getting smarter, laughing at your mistakes. There's a, there's a lot. There's less now after the financial crisis, but there's lots of people strutting around with a certain uh, intellectual arrogance about economics finance investment and mm. right now nobody has arrogance in international relations
1: did you have to learn how much you don't know like was there yeah. a point earlier in your career where you thought you knew it all and then over yeah well, time it's mark twain
0: you know certitude of uh, 21. yeah you 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 learn from a wide set of mistakes and cycles which gives you a humility which forces you to get smarter. For example, I went to a wedding this weekend, and half the wedding was from Uruguay. I know nothing about Montevideo except one of my kids' friends all went down there because they couldn't get a job in America. And I read seven articles this weekend on Uruguay just to, be, to begin to... I have no clue about Uruguay. There's that kind of madness, but compounded over time.
1: I know nothing about Uruguay. I know nothing about Montevideo. It was a great humble brag because you slide in how easily you knew the capital now.
0: I have to ask, you talk
2: about certitude on Wall Street. Yeah. And in addition to having a musical background, you also have a mathematical background. Right? And it seems like one of the areas <clears throat> in markets where people start to get really certain and have that certain mathematical swagger is when it comes to models. And you love talking about models. Right. How does your experience in mathematics feed into that? <laughs>
0: yeah, that, the, the, the background there was growing up with it. I have the, the clearest memories of getting up on my tiptoes and looking over my father's desk as he did a very sophisticated triple integration of space satellites. And I would literally play on the floor with the French curves. This is a million years ago. And like, like think Sputnik and IGY and all that. <laughs> and all of that became a mathiness which culminated in uh, Max Peters' fabulous program at the University of Colorado. Max Peters was a highly decorated Italian infantryman Mm -hmm. up the spine of Italy in World War II. And he went out to Colorado and put together uh, the mother of all grinds in engineering academics. And I was extremely fortunate to parachute into that for a couple years. So you take you know what I get in math and what I don't get. Trust me, there's a lot I don't get. Mm. And then you overlay that into some of the certitude of quantitative finance, and you get a massive humility. I I think the math overlay is a. It's a massive Type One. You've got it. Mm. But what it really is, and I see it every day, and it's getting worse. It's a little better in the couple last couple years. Is is the math phobia with economics, finance, investments, just stunning. It's just breathtaking That's how inter- bad it
1: is. That's interesting. So you see rampant math phobia because other people have argued that it's just the opposite, that economics and finance have become too mathy to the point where people can't explain in clear right. English what they're talking about. Do you see I, it the yeah, other way? Well, let me
0: parse that debate. You're absolutely right, Joe. The basic idea is there was an era, particularly coming out of World War II, of, of math, too much math, math anxiety, et cetera, et etc., and then at the undergraduate level, not at the PhD, not at the doctor track level, the graduate level, but at the undergraduate level, a vast majority of people don't have the dynamics in their head to do even basic Marshallian microeconomics or, you know, name the flavor of macro you want to do. The British are very different in the French. They have much better as a rule of thumb, undergraduate uh, mathematics than we do. If I, if I talk to British students, their knowledge of first order difference equations, off the chart. Honors undergraduate programs in the U.S., some of them have no clue what, what that is.
2: I'm pleased to say I've I've forgotten almost all the mathematics I learned at but university and college. However, <clears throat> however, I want to know. So when you see something like the events of August, when the market sold off and a lot of people were talking about mathematical formulas and model-based equations and risk parity at the center of yeah, that sell-off, yeah. what do you think?
0: I, I think some of it was extremely valid this time around. Uh, I. I I think that the model fatigue is much more in the macro area. Mm. The work Olivier Blanchard did at the IMF with mm-hmm. Joe Stiglitz and others is really important to ask. The non-sophisticated and the very sophisticated differential equation models that pro-PhDs use, and I don't pretend to be fluent in them, mm. they're very suspect after what we went through in August of '07.
1: Stepping back... So you have this interest and in, lifelong interest in mathematics, in music, which I, was, I also want to get to. But then, how did that? When did it click that markets and investment were Way what back, you were interested earliest in? Earliest
0: memories, earliest. It was permeating in my house. My, my grandfather knew A W Cohen, the point and figure guy. Mm. He did point and figure charts. My mother did point and figure charts. Wow. So you, you come O's. from a family I background grew up of totally, technical analysis, totally permeating wow. investment theory and investment analysis. You know, just original Graham Dodd and Cottle up on, And so Cottle.
1: in addition to everything else you were always interested in, you always knew that this was something you wanted to? No, I had no idea oh, you didn't I wanted know to you, do it. It was just it was there. It was just there. It was just there, kind of thing. I'm also, I don't think a lot of people know about your musical background, but why don't you give us the 60 to 90-second yeah, version here's of, your, a, here's of Tom Keene's musical The 90-second
0: version is real simple. At eight years old, I walked into a, a place called Stutzman's, which is legendary in the acoustic music business, with my father. There were six Gretsch White Falcons lined up. And Where did f- you grow up? Rochester, New York, All with right. Kodak. And my father bought me a $42 you know, acoustic guitar, and then I just began grinding away. And there were three or four iterations of it. But to make a long story short, I ended up doing the New England singer-songwriter thing, juggling a bunch of other stuff. There's a place in Nashville called the Bluebird Cafe, which is magical. Did you say the Bloomberg Cafe? The bluebird Cafe. The Bluebird Cafe. You know, it was just the New England folk scene. It was sort of, you know, in terms of, of artists around it, uh, uh, it was post-Tracy Chapman. Um, Suzanne Vega was really happening with Luca and Solitude Standing, and then a whole host of people came on, really jump-started by a guy named David Wilcox, who did an album called of The Hurricane, for A&M Records, which it just, there was like this mini folk boom. And what was so cool, we knew when we, this is before the internet, that's a key statement, even, we had no idea what was coming in digital, but we knew how lucky we were to do it, when we were doing it mm. we we knew it couldn't last
1: what was the greatest guitar you've ever owned
0: uh the one i got now uh, well, the greatest guitar my my concert gibson j100 which was picked out by eric schoenberg up in boston was stolen and i got it back four years ago i told dave drummond at google i got it off google images wow there was my guitar in google images but that and i've got some others now but I, I think that's, you know, I guess the the best one's the one my father had, but that's been lost.
2: So with your very, very idiosyncratic background yeah, in like,
0: mathematics. It's almost like Joe Weisenthal's love.
2: And music and investment. When you do your show today at Bloomberg and you look around the world, what do you see as the most important story going on right now?
0: Um, I, I think the number one story is one of my kids said to me, Daddy, when does this get get to be fun? And I think there's a massive understanding by people of a certain vintage that the kids don't have. They have lots of wonderful digital stuff and medical stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But the optimism has been shattered. Hmm. And the answer, uh, Jeff Immelt, I was with two years ago, I'm guessing, and he said, look, all we need is 3.2% GDP. And that solves a lot of problems. That's a very smart comment by the applied mathematician from Dartmouth. Hmm. We don't have that. The, the younger people, people under about 32, have never known normal.
2: So when you look at the world, you don't necessarily see problems of inequality. You see generational problems.
0: No, I think they're both there. But I think in 2015, that the generational issues are less spoken, which to an extent speaks of the anger in the politics today. Mm.
1: When do you think it was normal, or when was it fun? It was
0: fun? well, you know, you stand on the floor of the Republican convention, ex-conventions ago, and you go, "Well, this is surreal," or the Democrat. It doesn't matter which part party, but the answer is, we are programmed for a certain nominally real GDP that ain't happened. there's a quarter here a quarter there macroeconomic advisors right now has third quarter at 1.5 percent the next quarter is a little bit better but we we have not had the run rate of gdp that provides base psychological comfort to a lot of people whether it's overeducated twerps like my kids or you know people really struggling millions of americans do you think
1: i I mean i remember thinking in 2010 and 2011 when we had the raging debt ceiling debate and i think that was the first time that we saw this huge i would say the crisis in the economy seeming to really spill over into politics and we had this stark division the tea party and leadership but it hasn't faded as much as i would have guessed given how far unemployment has dropped. I mean, 100% correct. the economy is much better than it was in 2011, but we still have, I mean, yeah. look at Donald Trump and leading in the polls, Right. And you have rise of more radical politicians everywhere. Do you think it's something beyond economics? It yeah. has to do with the media environment, the Internet?
0: It has to do with the media, and it has to do with speed of transfer, you know, Twitter and all that. I mean, the Cyprus crisis alone with Twitter was surreal. That Saturday morning when Cyprus oh, yeah, blew yeah. up, how the Twitter dialogue change the discussion but what i would what is underemphasized from a newtonian mechanics standpoint is inertial force mm. and the word chronic and the answer is you're totally right about 10 and 11 and what's different now is it may not be force majeure like it was then but there's just this chronic weight of gridlock in washington this chronic sense of gdp underperforming even while unemployment supposedly gets better. And that goes back to productivity. You know, we could bore everybody with (laughs) three-ratio productivity analysis.
1: Did you say three-ratio productivity analysis? Yeah, productivity
0: in the media is uh, appallingly reported. There's capital, there's labor, and there's a separate ratio wrapped around something called total factor productivity, or TFP. And the pros know all that, and they sort of just you know when we talk about productivity gloss over it but the answer is labor ain't happening and certainly for a part of america this angus deaton winning the nobel prize a big deal big big deal this is the death of aggregate aggregation of summing everything together hmm. and that that's a really big deal that, that i i we talked to schiller today didn't have a chance to talk about it
2: well that brings us to again to your show when you go out and talk to people what makes them good interviews, and who are the best uh, interviewees that you think you've had? It's
0: a, it's a chemistry. It's a mixture. Um, and there's always exceptions. There's hyper-academic people that fail. and, and that I, I do think it's a chemistry. We keep very careful track of who we like and who we don't like. And I, I would say the third rail is we don't want people that are scripted or consulted. Mm-hmm. That was the rage two, three, five years ago. There's less of that now. We have less and less people on talking points, which is where a consultant comes in and tells them four things to say. That's gone away. But mostly, it's, you know, it's a media phrase, pop. They've got to have pop, particularly in radio, is critical.
1: So we talked about these sort of big general generational issues that you see as the main thing. What about this moment specifically when you look at financial markets? What are the big things that you're watching? Yeah. We're going to get into prediction season soon for 2016. Right. What do you What do you What do you have your eye on? What would you What are the charts that you look at first yeah. thing in the morning? Well, my
0: chart of the year is inflation-adjusted commodities back 60, 70 years. I've mm. shown it on TV probably 10 times. You can steal. It's a great chart. Great, great chart. And what does it look like? It It looks like a persistent. Decline in commodity prices over many years. And then there's a China aberration. (laughs) And we are off the top of my head, two thirds to three quarters of our way back to normal, Hmm. which is commodity, long term commodity deflation.
1: So you don't think the long term, we're not it's not over yet. If we're going to return to normal.
0: Then. I would suggest not that it's not over. I'm not going to make a prediction. Right. I would say the people predicting it is over are on tenuous ground. That's Tom's That's media
2: experience coming through there, refusing to make a prediction.
1: Do you think one thing I feel is like everyone's talking about deflation and central banks around the world failing to hit their policies and how are they going yeah. to reflate? They can't do it and then you see these conversations the phillips curve this idea that the employment and the inflation rate are inversely related and how that's dead and broken do you think we could be getting to an extreme in the other direction where everyone is just thrown in the towel on any sort of inflation coming back and anything like that and
0: no to get wonky on you uh, within a classic Uh -uh. islm matrix john hicks 39 and krugman's written about this beautifully what I would suggest is there's a total underestimation of real economy effects. Everybody's over in the bank. What's Yellen going to do? What's Carney going to do? Uh, which is fine. I mean, that's what keeps us employed, yeah. all three of us. But the real economy effects have been grossly underrated from day one of the crisis, August of, of '07. And the other thing I would suggest is the interest rate transmission between the real economy and the bank side of things. The LM curve is totally broken at the zero bound. And these, uh, there's things we don't understand that are going on in the interest rate sphere right now. That that are there's a mystery here.
2: I can't believe we've gotten this far in the segment without talking about your bow ties and the fact that the bow tie was almost right. entirely responsible for bringing you to Bloomberg, since uh, Mr. Matt Winkler also enjoys wearing it was, bow ties. It was a rumor.
0: Um, i found a picture of my grandfather my mother's father five years ago holding me and he had a bow tie on i have no recollection of my grandfather having a bow tie Um, it started when i was sort of sort of kind of like pre-med and i was in emergency rooms and they wouldn't let you wear a normal tie because they're afraid the patient will grab you Mm. with a regular tie so i was forced to wear a bow tie Hmm. Uh, doing what was called extern. This is a million years ago. This is before anesthesia. And, uh, uh, you know, it sort of started with that.
2: I'm assuming back then they weren't Hermes ties, though, as they are no, now. No, they were not.
0: No, they weren't. We did the clip-on thing minimally, I must admit. That that was like, no, nah, I don't want to do
2: that. Do you have a favorite tie? Does it mean something?
0: No, not really. This one's actually very old. This is like one of the original... It's an orange tie for those Bloomberg listening. Ties.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. That was a phenomenal discussion. I learned a lot about you. And um, no Podcasts our... are
0: really cool. You know, we did them years ago. And it, I, I totally agree with the new um, enthusiasm over yeah. podcasts.
2: Thank you for being our guinea pig, Tom. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us on the first episode of Odd Lots. Uh, We'll be doing this every week, and you can find it on Bloomberg.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and just about anywhere else. You can follow us on Twitter at at the stalwart for me, at Tracy Alloway For Tracy, we'll obviously be tweeting out the links. And thanks again to Tom Keen for joining us and being our guinea pig on this uh, first episode, and thank you for listening. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Top 302 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.